This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. This week, we welcome former world-class thrower, author, coach, and power athlete, Dan John. This episode is packed with words of wisdom from this part-time religious studies teacher, part-time coach, and full-time badass. We start by talking about how track and field has changed over the years and why genetics and geography play the biggest role in succeeding in sports. Dan also talks about why coaching and obtaining experience is, quote, like a bow and arrow. You can pull back and pull back, but eventually you have to let it go. Hear why he prefers to assess athletes using the farmer carry and why he feels the broad jump is a better test of power displacement as compared to the vertical jump. Also, which of his mediocre athletes are in danger of hearing those gut-wrenching words, maybe God doesn't want you to lift weights? What are Dan's thoughts about writing for the controversial and highly hormonal training resource, Testosterone Nation? To find out, you'll have to listen to an even more controversial resource. If Power Athlete Radio were an exercise, it'd be a high rep skull crusher. Here's episode 96 with Dan John. What's up, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. This is Denny. I'm here with Tex, Luke, John, and Callie. And today we're joined by special guest, Mr. Dan John. How's everybody doing? Yo, excellent. I'm Luke Summers. <laughs> and we're all great. You are Luke Summers. I'm really doing it. Yeah, we're Excellent. all we're all uh, reeling from a great weekend. We all had great weekends. Uh, Luke is is he was I assume spending the entire weekend practicing for his softball games that he's now playing softball. So. I was shredding the pow pow, snowboarding. Sh- shredding really, the gnar. No, See, really you know, the fact that you guys get to go snowboarding and take trips, I was home with my kids. You spent ten years in the NFL. You've had your fun. Yeah, <laughs> you need exactly. to be a dad now. You know, I uh, what do we do? We had a busy day at the farmers market, and then we went for a bike ride. To the home park, Depot. Bed back and beyond. Sushi. And then we went for Froyo. Oh, it sounds like your life was terrible this weekend. Yeah. Well, it wasn't like I got to go you know, snowboarding or go visit a collection of really cool Star Wars costumes. Dan, are, do you happen to be a Star Wars fan by chance? Of course, yeah. Okay, great, great. Well, I, well time, you know, I was in the – I saw the original in a drive-in, so you guys could do your best to trump me, but – yeah. Star Wars fan before I think most of you strode this planet. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, for the listeners who didn't get to hear us before the show, you did warn us because we were joking and somehow I made a reference to Gandhi and John said he had never met Gandhi, but then you chimed in very humbly, I might say, later, in fact, almost as like an afterthought that you had actually... Uh, or was it the Dalai Lama? Dalai Lama. Yeah. yeah, and you said you said that uh, you know that you had indeed met him, and that we could expect more one up one upping to occur. Well, I, I did meet George W. Bush, <laughs> which kind of which is, is uh, the same as the Dalai Lama, right? 
I'm still trying to get showered off from that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I met Hillary, Hillary Clinton too. I did with her. Oh, good for yeah, you. So yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I I got the opportunity to go see some some Star Wars costumes from the original movies in Seattle over the weekend. They had a big costume exhibit, so. You know, for what it's worth, I wasn't there in the theater when they originally came out, but I, I came in close contact to something that uh, Harrison Ford was wearing on his skin. So feel pretty feel pretty good about that. <laughs> I did get a chance to see all the Star Wars films in the theater. Did you? Well, 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 I did. The first one came out, what, in 77? Yeah. 77. Uh, first movie yeah, I my uncle was a big, huge nerd. So he brought me to that. I, I would have been like five-ish. And uh, I can remember going to see that film, man. Dude, I remember seeing uh, the first movie I saw was E.T. And we saw it at a drive-in in my parents' like 76 Volkswagen bus. <laughs> and my dad made popcorn and put Aww. it in the bathroom, big brown bag. And we sat back with sleeping bags and watched it. Aww. That was my first memory of a, bit of a movie. So. Dan, where did, you, where did you grow up? Uh, South San Francisco. Okay, so you're you're Californian as well. Yeah. Where'd you go to college? Pardon me? Uh, did you go to uh, uh, San Francisco State? No, Utah State. Oh, Utah State. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I uh, I grew up in South City, and it's a it's a great I mean, it's a great place. But I always wanted to. It, it, it's a great place, but I wanted to you know track out on my own. I'm the youngest of six, so no matter what I've done had done in my life, somebody else had done it before. So I yeah. Just, you know, let's let's roll the dice and see what happens. Yeah, that's great. And then you you th you did uh, you threw the shot into discus at uh, at Utah. Yeah, I was a discus thrower. Utah State, it, well, and it still is. It's a phenomenal discus throwing school. When I got there, the world record holder was an Aggie. Uh, Canadian record holder was an Aggie. Uh, national champs, I and mean, just a real real great tradition of throwers. Yeah. Did you uh, get a chance to go on in, um, I'm sure you trained for the Olympics, but uh, Olympic trials, anything? Oh, sure. I just wasn't good enough, but thanks for reminding me. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm always... Um, yeah, I forgot you know. those, the screaming and crying. I, I'd almost, uh, my therapist says that. <laughs> I, uh, it, it's funny with the, uh, with the Olympic stuff. I mean, I, I always thought, like, uh, having played in the NFL, people ask me always, like, you know, like, do you think it's a great accomplishment? And I always remember thinking, like, yeah, it's a great accomplishment, but I don't know if anything would ever outweigh uh, being able to get to the Olympics or really have that opportunity. I mean, it's pretty much you train your entire life for one moment. And, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, to me, that is like, uh, I think that's why people are so so gripping. You know, in the NFL, you get, you know, 17 chances. In baseball, you get, like, about a billion a season. But uh, the Olympics, once every four years, it's pretty, it's pretty solid. How, uh, were you, uh, like, how were you ranked? I mean, just kind of going into the whole Oh, I've been, I've been ranked throughout the years. I've, I've you know, tops, you know, I made 16 a couple times, which was great. You know, as an American, I've worn USA in my chest. Uh, we're just such a good, you know, when I came up, we were just so good. Uh, I mean, I mean, I tell, I tell these young kids I work with now, I mean, I threw 180 and 190 and didn't make the final. And I'm not talking about the manuals. I'm talking about a normal, you know, I mean, it was just so good at the time. Uh, in the 70s, one time, at a meet, Tim Ballmer threw 221 and didn't make the finals. So he didn't make the top eight. 221. Well, I mean, that would be the best throw in the world for like the last, you know, 
it was just a different world back then. Wow. Know? What do you think has changed? Well, I think dog tracks in the snow uh, would be number one. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, at least, at least where we are. I mean, mm-hmm. say that anabolic steroids aren't being used, it would be I mean, it would be juvenile. But uh, and it's obvious. I mean, when someone goes to another country to get special training, they come back and they say, "Oh, well, now I'm throwing the shot or disc with, you know, come on, you know, you had a 30 feet, come on." Uh, but the other thing is, uh, track and field is taking a big hit in the United States. Uh, you know, mommy and daddy can sign big checks to get you on an elite club volleyball team, an elite club basketball team, an elite club. But in track and field, man, there's no check. You show up. There's no um, – I mean, I can coach you in the discus to improve you, but you, we're not going to overcome your genetics. We're not going to overcome your lack of self-discipline. We're not going to overcome your, your inability to, you know, to stand tall in the face of pressure. It's a very – in the current generation, I mean, I'm, God, I sound like an old fart right now, but preach the, on, preach on. I love hearing this. Preach. In the current generation that we're, we're raising, track is not very popular because you can't out money the sport. You know, if you throw the discus in college, 145, and you win the conference. Uh, when I was in college, I threw 190. I can say, yeah, I threw 45 feet farther than you. It was the you might be throwing literally the exact same discus I threw a Hollywood star. And so a, a lot of people don't like it. I mean, the bar is set high in track and field. I'm not being, and it, it's like the Olympic lifts, you know. We joke sometimes about how many state records I have. Well, they kept changing weight classes in weightlifting through my career. So a lot of us have, you know, uh, 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 Vasily and I and Dave Turner, probably all of us have 30 or 40 state records. Now, that might be an exaggeration, but not by much because they kept changing weight classes. So we would break the state records, and then two years later they change weight classes. But you know, if you snatch 150 kilos, you're you're strong. You clean and jerk 180 plus, you're strong. No one no one's going to disagree with you on that. Yeah. You know, Dan. Um, a few years ago, I read your. It was like an ebook called Get Up, and I really enjoyed that. I I enjoyed like reading the history of uh, when you were being coached with Dick Nortmeyer. And kind of like you, you really went in the depth about uh, the the Olympic lifting background that you were just speaking of. Um, were you able to use that, or how do I want to say it? Was that be part of why you were uh, successful at throwing? Oh, no, that's yeah, absolutely. When I graduated yeah. from high school, 162 pounds. I meet Dick, and you know, we I put on 40 pounds in four months because man, it was all my traps and quads, you know, and my butt. And, uh, oh, yeah, I, you know, the, the, the mistake I made is I was a good bencher when I met Dick and then didn't bench press for, oh, gosh, three and a half, four years. In hindsight, I, sh- I should have kept benching. But the truth is, so you can get, you can throw really far with just the snatch and clean and jerk. In fact, I'm not even sure you need the jerk, the snatch and the clean. Now, that's what I did my senior year, and that was my big breakout year, was I just snatched and cleaned. That's I got. I was so sick of weightlifting my senior year. <clears throat> it's funny because I'd been training hard for seven and a half years, and like one day I just woke up, just kind of tired. <laughs> it's funny to say I was just tired of lifting weights, you know. So my senior year, I never back squatted over three eighty five, uh, but I 
but I did it, you know, real easy and real fast. And uh, I don't think I snatched over 265. I don't think I cleaned over 365. But I just decided to get in there, get it done, and go home. Well, my body loved it. So I guess the moral of the story is if you train really hard for seven years, you can take a little time off, you know. Uh, there's a weird story for you. And, uh, and to keep benching. Thank you for giving the bench press some love. How? Yeah. Why did? Why would you say that that you shouldn't have stopped? You can transfer, or like the bench press would aid, I guess, in uh, in throwing. But it comes down to this in everything. So as a thrower, you need to have, or, or any athlete, you need to have a a quality squat movement. You probably need to have some load on that squat. Okay. You need a good bench. You need to have do it correctly, and you need to have a good number. But the mistake we all make is enough is enough. You know, what happens with most people is, well, if a 500-pound squat has got me here, well, then a 700 squat is going to get me there, and it doesn't work. Once you hit that threshold where enough is enough, and here's the funny thing. When people read my work, they miss this point. My, once you clean over 350, the clean might not help anymore. But what people miss is you got to clean that adjective 350 first, okay? Uh -huh. You can't just show up and go, well, Dan John says strength isn't important. No, no, you got to clean 335, then talk to me about the value of form. I don't want to hear about So my point has always been so clear. It's like people think I'm anti-big lift, and it's like, well, you're some zit-faced high school boy in Des Moines, and you're critiquing <laughs> my work. You know, you shut up. Your 115-pound back squat isn't like a 605-pound back squat. Trust me, when you squat over six, things start to break on your body. It's the weirdest feeling in the world. And, uh, and I, of course, I'm gear-free, but you, just, you, you can't squat those huge loads and then walk out of the track and feel soft and springy and pliable. So enough is enough. So my problem with the bench press is I, I kept thinking when I was young, as I kept increasing my bench, I'd throw farther and farther and farther. You know what? It was true. I did. But then I discovered once I could just bench as easy as I could, right around 400. So get to 400 the fastest, quickest way I could. I didn't need anything past 400. Yeah, it's interesting that you make that point because we, we try to reiterate to athletes all the time that – <clears throat> what we do in the weight room are tools to, we provide tools to make you successful in whatever your sport or your discipline is. Unless you are, your your sport itself is powerlifting or is Olympic lifting, then, you know, perhaps there there comes a point in time where, you know, if it's, if it's negatively inhibiting your ability to go out and practice, um, then, you know, then you've reached the point of diminishing returns, right? And oh. I think that's kind of the point you're trying to drive home. No, I mean, that's, in fact, that would be the great insight of my career. We say looks like Tarzan and plays like Jake. And you'll find a lot of kids <laughs> fantastic in the weight room, but who can't play on the field. And you'll see it all the time in high schools. You'll get that football player who comes out like a senior year to throw, and he throws 32, 35 feet in shot, and he's twice as strong as a sophomore boy throwing 46. Well, the problem is the, the strong boy is – I tell you this, I always loved it when I did Highland games and some guy who was a bodybuilder showed up and asked me what my bench press was because I always told him the same thing. 225, but I did it for three because this guy instantly thought he was going to beat me because his bench press was better than that. 
where I knew that this guy didn't have a prayer. Looks like Tarzan plays like Jim. Yeah. Sounds like well, well it's, it, Yeah, that's the same observation I made uh, early in my NFL career. I mean, I came in and was pretty strong. And, uh, you know, after I think my second year, I decided, you know, they wanted me to get bigger. And I was like, you know what, uh, I'd already benched 500 pounds. And, like, you know, if I can get stronger, and I just push the lift, push the lifts. And I realized that you only have so much training time. And if you d divide and really push all your training toward time towards getting stronger on that top end, I never really saw the difference between, you know, about a 450-pound bench and a 550-pound bench. But the amount of time that it took me to get up to that 550 took away a lot of the flexibility, the movement, and a lot of the key factors that I needed to develop as an athlete. And I, that first year, I kind of fucked it up a little bit. And then as I kind of uh, trimmed it back, um, all of a sudden, I kind of created a matrix in my head that, like, hey, you know what, this is how strong I need to be. And then my whole offseason was spent getting back. And once I hit that point... It was about like, hey, okay, I'm good. Everything's balanced. And I had like a whole bunch of different training matrix. It was like right around about a, a 450 bench. I think it was like right around a 600-pound squat. And I think I pulled like a set of eight for five or uh, with 585 on the RDL. And if I could do 10 pull-ups with 90 pounds between my waist. And I had all these kind of little measures that I knew that like if I could hit all these, I was ready to go. And it just becomes this, uh, you know, this idea of, like, hey, this is what I need to do. And. I mean, dude, I saw the same thing. You see this guy come in and, you know, looks like a million bucks, comes in, bench in the world, and you go out there and just hit the dude and you fall like a bunch of pillows. So it was never the dude that I was ever worried about that looked like the bodybuilder. It was always the weird, awkward dude that was, like, kind of bow-legged, kind of wide hip, big butt, big legs, kind of skinny, kind of gangly upper body. And you're like, holy shit, this guy is kind of a freak. And those guys usually were some of the most athletic, uh, just kind of awkward, strangely fast dudes. So... Was, uh, those are the guys I was most worried about. Dan, when I watched, uh, I, I watched your interview with Mark Ripito, and it, I thought that you made a, an interesting point when you were, you were talking about how there comes a time when, you know, individuals like, I just got to outwork this person. You know, I don't have these great genetics. I just got to, I got to work 24-7, work, 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 work. And then eventually it's like you'll get to this point in your career where you don't really need to do that anymore, but it's hard to get out of that mentality. Yeah. You know, and when you were talking about once you were able to, like, squat 600 pounds or, or clean 350, like, you've, you've reached that point. You don't really need to pursue higher numbers, but uh, that, like, personality that, that a person has to constantly outwork it almost seems like it would start to get you into some like dangerous waters. Yeah, you know, I I I like like two programs a lot. I think they have great value, but what most people misunderstand is that you come into a two day a week program when you're to the point that that's all you need. Uh, so following up your point, and the people who usually can't handle it are the people who have always been trying to find the edge on their competition. You know, looking for the next wave, looking for we're looking for the edge. Whatever cliche works for you, and and what happens in a situation like me, undersized and all that, is that I I would outwork my my thought process was this: I would outthink and outwork you, and I'm going to stay one wave ahead of you. And uh, it got to the point where I didn't need to do that anymore. Uh, and I, when I was able to slide down, now when I say able, why was I able? 
Well, it's because I was a full-time high school teacher. I'd taken on a job as a full-time college teacher. I was coaching, had two daughters at home. I had a dog and a cat and a wife who travels a lot. All of a sudden, I had this opportunity. I'm doing that thing with the fingers doing quote marks. Okay? Fingers. <laughs> this opportunity that I only had two days a week to train. And then my career kind of blossomed again. Now, you throw out all that stuff, I would have still been training seven days a week, two, twice a day. And I'd probably crush myself even more than I did. So sometimes life will actually provide this opportunity to really improve your training. Uh, when people ask me all the time, Dan, should I get this degree or should I do that? I always tell them, well, you know, four years from now, if you follow that, you'll have the degree. And in four years, if you don't, you won't have the degree. Well, but then they think, well, what about this, this, and this? Well, you can do both. You can do many things. And, and it is an interesting thing that sometimes, and you'll notice if someone has the courage as an athlete to stick around, to stick around for mastery, I guess that's, I always use that in my books and writing up. And that's funny because I'm not sure what I always, the great question, Joseph Campbell, you keep using the word God, but what does that mean? Uh, when I say mastery, it's like I keep saying the word mastery, but what does that mean? When you pursue mastery, sometimes you find these bizarre periods of five to six, seven years where it seems like nothing is happening in your career, and then out of nowhere, you suddenly get better again. It, because very often, that's the first time in your career you stop forcing it. You know, uh, we have a, we have on the phone here, we have a young lady. Well, if I decided to force us into a relationship, call you up constantly, hey, what were you doing last night at 3 a.m.? I came by your house, I noticed that there was a light on, what were you doing? Uh, pretty quickly, this relationship would, would stagger and die, I think, and I see the same way as an athlete. You can't constantly be stalking your achievements. You've got to sometimes you know, let that baby fly a little bit, relax, ease up. Um, the image I always use for both lifting, throwing, and life is a bow and arrow. You know, you, you pull it, you pull it, but to really make things happen, you've got to let it go. And um, I think what happens sometimes is when you get really busy, you finally have the courage to let things go. Um, I, think, I think that makes, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think it's hard for people to conceptualize that, like what you mean about kind of letting it go and letting the learning happen organically. But uh, there is a, there's a lot to that. I mean, we get contacted all the time by people who are very earnest and have, uh, you know, they're, they're looking for as much knowledge as possible or, or people who we work with or at seminars who, you know, want more and more and more. But ultimately, um, you know, I'm, one, I'm always curious as to how much they're actually digesting and how much not only are they uh, able to, to, to understand and to sort of put into practice, but like, Truly, as a coach, like, are they able to to implement that and and create like a, an environment where it can exist without it being so, you know, contrived in their training or their coaching or whatever? And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but like, where it's where it's sort of like you've you've incorporated the tools as you see fit. You're not just taking a cookie cutter thing and saying, "All right, I've now done this, so now I can put that on my resume for saying I've I've done X or whatever." You know, kind of even simplify it more, okay? I've basically been retired for five years now. I'm 57, and I made this vast fortune by the most lucrative way you can do it, being a high school religion teacher for a Catholic school in Utah. <laughs> all of you know, 
the royal road to riches, but <laughs> in my twenties, I saved ten percent of my income. Now, just, I'm just, I'm just. This is an analogy, so we just lost half of our audience, but <laughs> my seventy-five percent of our audience. <laughs> yeah. So my point is, is that how many of you were told in high school to save ten percent of your income? No. I mean, isn't that economics 101, personal finance 101? Well, I did it. And when I look back over my athletic career and, 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 and any athlete I work with today, basically what I look at as I say, what I'm telling them is buy low, sell high. Uh, save 10% of your income. Uh, I'm telling uh, drink water. I mean, I, I'm telling them things that are so fundamentally, inherently simple that it, it's almost bothers you, but really what makes up a career is is linking all that stuff stepwise, and then one day, uh, miraculously, the discus goes far, you, 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 all your dreams come true, and you, you marry the prince or whatever, whatever your goal is. And I, I think it's always been that it, you, you must master the fundamentals, the basics, and then have the courage to allow those to slowly swell over time. And the thing is, how fast that swells, a lot of it, now I, I always use two G's, the two G's, genetics and geography. I grew up in a track and field family. I grew up in a time where the discus was probably the most popular event at track meets. Um, my genetics might not have supported my goal of being a thrower, but my geography did. If you were uh, Usain Bolt and you grew up in West Texas, you'd be a wide receiver who the coach hated because you weren't very tough. <laughs> you grow up where the national sport is sprinting, you're the world record holder. So a lot of times those two things bounce off each other. And my thought always is that my job as a coach and as, as an athlete is to fertilize both of those, uh, get you into a geographic place that supports your goal set. i got to tell you, that might not be true anymore. But when I was young, if you want to be a bodybuilder, you didn't live in a certain part of Southern California, you were too stupid to be a bodybuilder because that's where it was. And if you decide to be in a, you know, Mr. Greater Utah is your goal, you'll look fine, but you're never going to break through to the top here. You've got to make the, the voyage down there. Well, genetics and geography blend each other. So my job as a coach is to fertilize your genetics and then get you in the right spot. Put you around some good soil, if you will. Okay, and that doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, I, th I think one of the interesting things that you make a point on is I've never heard anyone say that anyone was too stupid to be a bodybuilder, but uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of bodybuilders that now appreciate that. <laughs> well, no, but I, that makes sense though. If you want to be, know. if you want to be the, the best, like I've met some pretty unintelligent bodybuilders. But but point but well made. Know how to. Make it happen. Yeah, well, you have to sort of make the it's changes. It's just like when I told my dad I wanted to lift weights, and, and the only response he gave me was, uh, "Why do you want to do that? You have to be a moron to count. Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, count to count to ten over and over again." Is what he said to me. So, uh, well, yeah, and if you want to be, I mean, uh, there was a time where if you want to be the best powerlifter in the United States, you might want to move to Ohio. I think that, or you know, near where Marty Gallagher was, or. If you want to be the greatest Olympic lifter in U.S. history, probably a good idea not to be from the U.S. <laughs> yeah, that's true. At the same time, I could have been on the Irish. Uh, my family's Irish. I, I can claim Irish uh, citizenship. 
I could have made the Irish national team lots and lots of times. So it, it you can also shortchange this idea too, and you know you can also you know make it work for you. But uh, genetics and geography and letting things kind of letting things grow themselves is sometimes uh, missed. I think. So Dan, I'm curious as to what. Um you know, just hearing a little bit more about your background and kind of getting to know you through the podcast, I'm curious to know what your temperament is like in in training situations. Um, you know, how would you describe yourself both in your own training or when you're kind of training other athletes in the weight room or um, whether it's on field or what have you? Well, um, first off, I'm a classic check mark. okay? I have a horrible temper. Uh, my daughters can fill you in on one or two times people have messed with them. It doesn't go well for the person who messes with them. Um, on the other, so as a coach, I try to be very calm, very reasonable, very seasoned, very smart. Uh, when I train, uh, fact, now one thing I am competitive. Today I put up a one of my friends did a little feat, so I decided to double him, and I put that up today. Uh, I do have a problem. With, my competitive streak is, 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 is toxic to my health. So I have had to get smarter. Well, I haven't. That's not true. I just lied. <laughs> I apologize. So as a coach, one of the things my, it takes a while for my athletes to learn is I don't always feel like I have to instantly have the best answer in the world. I think one of the three keys to being a coach is savoir-faire, and that is the ability to kind of react quickly to change, to be able to go from this to this. And one of the things I warn my athletes is my savoir-faire, my ability to react and change things isn't as quick. It might take, I prefer taking three weeks or even longer if it has to on a technical improvement, say in the distance throw, than to just throw a bunch of mishmash at you each and every day. Uh, in an hour or so I'll be out uh, coaching my thrower uh, and uh, it's taken me the better part of a month to figure out what was wrong with the discus throwing technique because I knew I had to come to the root of the problem. So I think as I age, the more I, the more, the more I've decided that let's get to the okay. There's cause and effect. I think at your job, my job as a coach, is to I'm waving my hand like there's smoke in front of me. My job is to wave away all the smoke and to find the fire, I need to find the cause of a problem. Not, I mean, telling an athlete, oh, you threw that out of bounds. Yeah, coach, I, I know that. So does all 10,000 people here. We all know that. What was the cause of that going out of bounds? Oh, you picked up your right foot too late. Or you picked up your right foot late, and then you let it act like an anchor. Instead of picking up the knee, you picked up the heel. So when I, it took me a cop, but Chandler's been picking up his heel Rather, rather than picking up his knee. Well, once I realized that the other day, I, I mean, I wouldn't say I started to cry, but it was so frustrating because I, I've known that with other athletes in a while. It just took me a while to come back. Here's the nice thing. What I can do now with Chandler, we've already worked on it, is now I have the cause of this problem so we can focus throw after throw after throw on the, the correct corrective, not just I'll tell them all the effects. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious that uh, I, I believe if, I know it's hard with the news, I believe the Seahawks just lost the Super Bowl. <laughs> what, what's going to happen is 
a lot of people are going to go to that one play. But I argue it was if you watch Tom Brady's last two drives, not to take the knee, but the two before, where he scored two touchdowns and he went like a, like 15 for 17. To me, that's the cause of the win. Not every everybody in the world sees that one play, but to you know. He, so for me, that's what I'm trying to do with my career is find the causes of things, not just what you see on the scoreboard, not just what you see in the newspaper, but what really happened. How that, would you? How did you uh, use use the the weight room to help kind of bridge the gap between like weight room strength and performance on the field or or in a particular event? Yeah, you know, this is a good this. This brings it to two things, and I talk about these a lot. The first is standards. You know, I think every, I think one of the things you have to do as a coach is have a standard. And uh, like my friend Josh Hillis has one for females and body fat. He says an interesting thing is that if a woman can squat 135 for five and three pull-ups, almost universally she has her body comp goals in line. And it, when he said that, it was like one of those things that kind of took me aback. It was like, huh, wow, because it was such a simple standard. And so, like, for example, we know for an elite thrower, you need a 400-pound bench, 250 snatch, 300 clean, 450 back squat, deep back squat. Well, I had standards for high school football. And one of the things began to happen is once you start to have a, a minimum standard, this is what a varsity football player should probably do. This is what a a female fat loss client you're looking at. I'm, I'm scratching my chin as I do this. As I scratch my chin here, you begin to see certain patterns emerge. Like a high school boy tends to throw the discus well and the shot put well after they clean about 200 pounds. When they front squat about 200 pounds. The number I came up with 205. Once they start cleaning 205 and front squatting 205, all of a sudden, the weight room translates to the, to the ring. And then the other thing uh, that I started to notice is that when a kid had gaps in the weight room, uh, the most common gap is a deep squat and, a, uh, and doing any kind of loaded carry like farmer walks. But when they had that kind of gap, just by having to do farmer walks, seemed to translate into the ring and in the football field and the wrestling mat better than, say, adding 50 pounds to bench press. So one of the things, and I hope all of you would learn from my time in the weight room on this, is that when you start to notice certain things happen over and over again, you know, write them down, slap them up on the wall so that information stays a while. This high school, this local high school, just came up with a standard for varsity football. They want their varsity football players to clean 1.5% of their body weight, 150% of their body weight. And when, when my daughter told me, I laughed out loud, and how much can I swear on this? As, as much as you want. want. That was the stupidest fucking thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> A high school boy who weighs 200 pounds is expected to clean 300? High school. Well, well I cleaned 300, and I'd say I cleaned 303 for the first time. Uh, nine months after getting with Dick Knockmeyer. So I was on my way to my sophomore year of college, and I weighed 204. Guys, I could throw the college discus a long ways, and I could barely make their standard. I mean, 
where do these guys come? Where do they pull this out of? So you have to be very careful, very careful when you come to your standards because it's, it's they're rubbish. What happens if you have that 260-pound kid who's going to probably maybe play Division One? 260. Do the math. You're going to have okay, right? Right. 260 plus 130. What is that? Yeah, is 390 a good clean for a high school boy? <laughs> Pretty good. Fucking uh, unbelievable. <laughs> good. I mean, if you had that boy clean in 390, you, you think how do you think he would do on on Friday night against that 150 pound kid across from him? Well, he better destroy him. Yeah. He better throw him. I mean, it better be like one of those you know uh, Lord of the Ring things when that animal starts throwing the the you know goes through and starts throwing the people or elves or whatever the hell it is. Talking about the works. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you have to be careful. It has to be. You can't just hire some jackass to be your strength coach. Now, was, was this a standard that they were putting out? Like, like this is what everybody should be, or this is like the, the gold yeah. standard? Because I, I remember it's like as, a benchmark. Uh, when I was in high school, our gold standard was a 500-pound deadlift, 400-pound squat, 300-pound bench, and a 250-pound clean. Okay. Uh, you basically had to add up those numbers. And uh, that, like, you know, you, you can meet the board for all those, but then I remember the total, whatever it is, gets you to what we call our, like, you know, CK or Panther Club or whatever or what, what it was. US, the US clean was the tough part. USC football had the standard for years of 300 clean, 400 bench, and 500 squat. And their old coach used to argue that if you, you don't need more than that. And it's funny because – your school is basically at the USC standard, but um, that's which is all fine. But I guess what my point is is that you have to have if if you had a whole team of kids who could all and it's not going to happen, but clean 150, 150 percent, and you don't win every game, you suck. You flat out suck as a staff. You are so bad you should all be fired because it ain't the strength coach's fault. You know, you have the uh, a national Olympic lifting team in your weight room. <laughs> and here's the other problem, as many of you will find out over time, to go from, you know, my standard for a high school boy, you know, 205 front squat, 205 clean. You know, that's, those are the, those are, those are two, those are the, those are the, a key, kid can play varsity. But to get that kid from 205 to 255, you know, could certainly happen. But, there might be a cost or benefit that you're not, you might be missing. Yeah. You know, there might be a cost in all that increase that, you know, I'm not saying injuries. I'm just saying nervous system and time and effort that might be better spent. You know, I've always thought that if you got a kid who can uh, run the high school high hurdles and clean 205 and front squat 205, he's fine. Don't worry about him. He can play. At uh, University of Washington in the 90s, they, they set their standard at 500 pounds for offensive lineman squatting. So they, NSCA published, like, uh, they published all the D1 university numbers, and University of Washington was leading 500-pound back squatters. What they didn't list was the number of back surgeries that they were submitting for these kids. Well, the, uh, if, if you guys know who the big stud was uh, at the University of Washington about that time, uh, Dan would probably know, was a guy named Steve Etman. Do you guys remember who Steve Etman was? Sure. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, these guys are probably too young, but uh, I had the opportunity to meet Steve Etman, and he was probably one of the most physically impressive human beings I've ever seen. Played, played nose tackle, or played nose tackle. 
for uh, the University of Washington. It was also about 310 pounds, and uh, there was a video of him doing uh, standing backflips. Yeah. Uh, just a, a freak of nature. But uh, Eric Cohn, who was my strength coach at Cal, was actually the assistant at the University of Washington. And then when Keith Gilbertson came to Cal, he was our guy. So we would, you know, and I'd met Steve Edmond there and used to hear the folklore of the uh, University of Washington. So there was a, it was a, definitely a, a hotbed for, for some uh, uh, human performance. You know, real quick, my, my old friend John, uh, John Price, he was a thrower for Washington in the 60s. And the only strength coach help they got was from the swim coach. And the swim coach told him the key in the weight room is you are only as strong as your weakest link. And I tell you, it's funny because John, that was his mantra. And it's funny because 19, 1960s, so he's got to be, John's got to be close to 70 now. If not over seventy, and yet, man, what a what a great summary of what our job as a strength coach is. You're only as strong as your weakest link, and you got that from the swim coach. Because you know, back then, if you lifted weights, it did two things to you: one, it made you muscle bound, and two, it turned you into a homosexual. Which uh, which I actually still heard when I first started lifting weights. Uh, I still touch my toes, and I can't. I mean, agree or on, on the other point uh, is not even worth the dignity of discussion. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I definitely know where that's coming from a swim perspective as uh, on the field you can overcome a lot of, you know, weaknesses, but it, you got the water fighting back of you, you have to be perfect in everything. Yeah. Well, see, and I would argue, too, as a thrower, you know, well, like, I hate that. I always use the prison. I apologize. But as a thrower, you know, after your 10,000th throw this year, what's going to fall off is what you overlooked. You know, and I think as a, you can't, in a collision sport or a collision occupation, you could just have bad luck. So I'm always worried because, you know, I call it quadrant two in my system, but quadrant two tends to dominate all the discussions. That's the Navy SEALs and the NFL. And that's all great and glorious and wonderful, aren't we? Fabulous and God bless all of us. But really, that stuff doesn't translate to, like, swimming or track and field. You know, um, I don't need to build up any armor as a thrower. I don't need agility. Whenever I find out that a high school track program is doing agility, folks, they don't throw shit at you. You throw shit at them. You know, you don't have to duck, you know. Uh, God. So, I, I, you know, you really don't need agility. You don't, as a discus thrower, you don't need any conditioning. You don't need any at all. Uh, you know, you need enough flexibility to, you know, get the get everything in the right place. But if you want to be in a football player, you better have those other skills. So I think sometimes what happens is, is we've allowed our – it's funny how we, you know, in this industry, football pushed back on strength training for a long time. Not as long as boxing, not as long as baseball. And track and field adopted it. So a while ago, we had a lot of strength coaches who were track and field guys. And then, if you might remember, the bodybuilder and the powerlifter guy showed up. And God bless them both. They're, they're all fine people, I'm sure. But what happens is, you know, we got this idea that, you know, if you can't squat 700 you're worthless, you better work your arms. And it's kind of nice to see the industry starting to spin back again to that more traditional thing is the strength coach supports what's happening out in the field. We're not a sport in ourselves. That was a long point, wasn't it? <laughs> no, I mean it, it, it makes sense. I mean there there was a huge change in uh, 
in like pro football and really um, uh, it, it really started in the 70s where I, and I, I always remember hearing the story that there was like a big powerlifting meet in like the university or in Pittsburgh somewhere and there a bunch of NFL players came and I guess all the powerlifters and the NFL players got together and next thing you know uh, you know a lot of the training methods and whatever else they, they, they knew they kind of exchanged stories and there was that kind of that whole mentality kind of really changed because I mean before in the 60s and 70s, like there was kind of an attitude uh, in the NFL that you shouldn't lift weights; that'll make you a worse player. That you know, like you said, it'll become muscle bound and have other problems with it. And then there was this kind of big deal, and then all of a sudden, there's been kind of a shift. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's like uh, you know, all these numbers are great, and everybody loves to use them. I mean, that's what the combine's all based on. But you know, there's, you still have to pass the uh, you know the field test, which is like, let's go turn on the film. I remember going to the combine and putting up these great numbers and jump and do all these things. But at the end of the day, I had to sit down with every coach and watch your game film and explain exactly what you did on every play. So, I mean, it was almost like all of this training and all of the, the different combine checks were almost like a, like check marks. Like, okay, good. He's exactly the person we knew who he was. He can run, he can jump, he can lift, he can do all these things. But at the end of the day, if you can't play dead, you're not going to get the job. So I think uh, people love to put so much value in it because it's quantifiable. Well, if he can bench 400 pounds, he's got to be better if he can bench 450 mm-hmm. when they realize at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is can you get it done on the field that day. I mean, I, I never walked out on the field and had a guy tell me how much he benched. I never saw it tattooed on his body. I never saw it on his jersey. So I just you know, knew that some guys were strong and some guys weren't. Yeah, I also find it interesting when they check out numbers, say a guy gets freaking uh, as many reps as Javon Curse, then he's going to be compared to Javon Curse, even though they're a decade apart and two different athletes. Well, the NFL is really big on... Uh, like history and and trying to like refine that guy. I remember uh, Derek Thomas, God rest his soul, who was a you know, great pass rusher for the Kansas City Chiefs. We went to training camp every year up in uh, River Falls, Wisconsin, and Derek Thomas had about eight kids uh, with about eight different women all in the Minneapolis, River Falls, Wisconsin area. And I remember the scouts all telling me that they're that they were all going to start scouting that area all hoping to find the next Derek Thomas. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I swear to God. I mean, I, I heard that story, and, like, there's this, you know, the NFL is so big on, like, oh, that guy reminds me of this guy. Because, like I said, it's quantifiable. Oh, he's this, he's this. And they, they use these taglines, like hard hat, lunch pail, athlete, plays well in a phone booth. I mean, all these little key terms, because it allows them to quantify and kind of pigeonhole people into certain little places. And uh, it, it's just an easy way to describe it. Kind of like we always joke at Ocean's Eleven. You remember, he's like, oh, we're going to need Ella Fitzgerald. We're yeah. this. And you can kind of label people for the job based on these, like, descriptions. Yeah, and so, you know, they're like, oh, I'm going to need a uh, Tony Baselli. I'm going to need a Derek Thomas. I'm going to need a, uh, you know, uh, this guy. And it just kind of fits all together. And it's just an easy way. And I'm sure... You know, if you were to ask Dan, you know, if you were to put together his all-star team, he could do the same thing. So it's just, it's just an easy way to do it. And I remember as a, you know, young player coming in, they're like, oh, uh, you know, you remind me of so-and-so. So what's the first thing I do? I go look that dude up. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you're watching, you're like, God, that guy actually sucks. That's not good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's an idea. <laughs> <laughs> like you remind me of this guy, you're like that wasn't very good. Shit, I better change that. Like a group, uh, a group in instructor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Oh man. So Dan, what, what are you doing these days other than just just coaching kids, saving lives, changing lives? Writing. Writing and uh. Well, in fact, I'm, yeah, it's funny. I'm editing my uh, my next book. It's called Can You Go? It's a system of assessments I use, but uh, 
in the mornings, a uh, couple days a week, I have my throwers come over here. We Olympic lift in the 9.30. I have an intentional community that anybody in the world who shows up trains with me. Today we had a really good workout. Did, uh, today did, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a lot harder than I thought it was, but it was a good workout. And then... Uh, <laughs> Fran? Was it Fran? Was it, was it 95 pound barbell thrusters? No, it was... Uh, <laughs> well, uh, okay, I'll bore you with it. Okay, so you did a set of... TRX T's, followed by a set of uh, double kettlebell presses. We had the so the double twenties, double twenty fours, double twenty eights, double thirty sixes, and then uh, uh, twenty five swings after that. And we just kind of tried to do as many loops as we could. The idea was to do ten, and uh, so I did. I got twenty five, uh, uh, two hundred fifty swings in, and then with the double thirty sixes, and it's on film. It's on my Facebook today. I cry out. It's actually a set of 10 with two misses, but we'll count it as 12. Uh, I, I pressed the double 36s for 12, which is good, you know, for 57. And uh, then uh, most days, the afternoon, I take care of uh, chores and uh, watch my grandkids sometimes. And then I go off and I coach, uh, I, I coach the throwers. Um, but really, a lot, of, a lot of my life right now is uh, traveling on the weekends and... Uh, you know, selling books and trying, you know, really, I'm really trying to give back to both track and field and weightlifting the best way I can. Um, Are you still uh, traveling for uh, RKC, still working with those guys? Well, uh, you know, the number of kettlebell events I do a year uh, with Strong First or whoever is very few now, and they're just, there's, you know, it's just not like it was. Uh, mostly I travel, well, I do perform better, and then I do a lot of my own workshops. I have a new workshop this year called The Art of Coaching. And it's a three-day it's a three-day workshop. Uh, it'll be lecturing on coaching. It'll be on, on a lot of things, but it also includes assessment and then hands-on and then how to how to coach in group settings. It seems to be a, a, a something that is lacking. Uh, we we a lot of people are kind of good one-on-one. You self-coach like for those of people who coach yourself, you don't need any clarity at all. If you have one client, I always recommend coach your spouse because that will teach you more about coaching than anything in the world. You need a hell of a lot of clarity. But if you coach 114-year-olds at once, you need absolute clarity. You can't call things different. So I have this thing called six-point position. It always has to be six-point position with 114-year-olds. I can't call it the Mountain Dew position tomorrow. It's got. It always has to be the same. So... That'll be a point, and 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 I do workshops a lot. Um, I'll go to Europe twelve times this year. Um, my wife jokingly calls me David Hasselhoff because I'm big in Europe. Um, <laughs> I think it's funny, but no one else seems to. Uh, so a lot of travel, a lot of training. Uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to be a, a. It's nice. I I finally, I think I'm to the place in my physical life. I had a total hip replacement a couple of years ago, and then I had a hernia fixed. And honestly, in the last, like, oh, my gosh, couple months, it's like I feel like I used to feel again. I feel really good. I don't have all that, I call it cortisol, call it whatever you want, but that painful inflammation that comes with an injury. And so I'm back to training heavy and hard again. Not, not crazy, smart stuff, but I just feel good. And I, you know, I... Oh, it's kind of nice. So, you know, I, I have I have some plans for the future, and they're all pretty positive. I, I want to make 
Uh, in fact, the, the guys coming today, uh, my wife and I have endowed, made a couple of endowments at different schools, and now we're going to start up a n another one. I don't want to give you details, but this, what we're trying to do, a couple things at the schools, Catholic education in Utah is, is hard to afford for the teaching staff. So that's something we're trying to address, you know, uh, and then we also want to do something kind of for all, you know, all. I would like it in the future uh, that if people had the same opportunities I had, and I worry that some of them aren't going to be there, you know, we'll try to make a difference there. That's great. That's, yeah, that's great. I mean, you know. It sounds like you, you've, uh, on that account as well, outdone all of us and what we're doing with our free time. So that's another we one. We do Wade's Army. I mean, uh, we, we, we started a 501c3 um, to fight pediatric cancer um, called Wade's Army, and it was in memory of a little boy named Wade DeBrun. I, I high-fived a, a homeless person once. So, yeah. Over no, the I mean, weekend? Uh, you know what? It, it's all about that kind of paying it forward. you got to do something to create a ripple. Uh, Dan, are, are, are you still in Salt Lake City area? Well, I'm in Murray, beautiful Murray, Salt Lake. That's a dump. We've been there. Yeah, where are you? We've we've been there for a seminar. Yeah, the uh, my uh, I have a good friend, uh, a Dr. Craig Bueller, who's in Kaysville. That, yeah, that's uh, up north a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I I, I gotta go visit him. So I'll uh, uh, next time I'm in I'm in the area, I'll definitely look you up. Yeah, beautiful Murray. It's uh, about what about six miles south of the city or something like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, it's. Uh, it's uh, got a little cloud today, got a little snow on the mountain. It's, uh, it's Sounds great. It's, it's been great. Uh, blue skies, a lot of blue skies lately. Least amount of crap in the air I can ever remember for this time of year. So it's been it's been nice, though we do need some snow. We need some snow. Yeah, we need some rain. Bad. Yeah. Um, Dan, before we get off strength and conditioning too much, I was curious as to what are some of the, your favorite tools to use in terms of athlete assessments, um, you know, and does it vary from athlete to athlete as you get more sports specific with them? Um, but are there, are there some, you know, go-to things or resources or, uh, things that you've developed through your coaching experience that you like to lean on for that type of thing? Well, okay, to be a total jerk, let me give you my three-word assessment for athletes. Ready? Can Ready. you move? Because <laughs> that's it. I mean, to me, that's how you assess. I mean, you know, God bless you that it's raining, and God bless you that you your greater tibulus is overreaching its meta. I don't – can you go? So for me, that's it. But, you know – I have my own little set of assessments, like for everybody, but I still, I still like. At, at the basic level, I sure like a standing long jump and a farmer walk test. Mm -hmm. uh, both uh, watching me do a farmer walk test just tells me so much about what's going on in your your gaps and your strength levels. There's no teaching involved. It's I don't there's. You can, you know, the first time you do a farmer walk, you're pretty close to having it mastered. Standing long jump, it'll give you some clues about what we need to think about. I, you know, I'm FMS certified, and I know all that. And I think it's some greatness, but I simply just assume that everybody has shoulder mobility and active straight leg problems. I just assume it because once we start training, it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just going to – so we just stick it in. Um my guys are all Titleist Golf, uh, what are you, TPI? TPI, as we like to say. They're all, <laughs> they're all TPI, you know. And so sometimes I'll have, like, Mike do, uh, even though the guy's not a golfer, we'll have him do the assessment 
because sometimes that they, they put people in that hinge position way sure. around. I think that's actually a real eye opener. From there, uh, you know, for example, with my my really fine thrower I have now, you know, he had some he had some ankle mobility issues, and to be honest with you, I wasn't. And I'm still even as I say the sentence, I still don't care. Uh, but we thought long term addressing the ankle mobility now where he's at, maybe that allows his maybe that doesn't know a lower his knee your back or something like that down the line with the Olympic lifts or the squat. Sure. So we kind of did that as a prophylactic, if you will. Not yeah. used that a lot of use the word term prophylactic, but <laughs> uh, so sometimes so and then the truth is, I mean, sometimes you just it's just can you go, baby. I mean, that's that's um, here's your goal. Um, uh, here's here's what I can do to help support that goal. Yeah, I think the the farmer carry thing is actually I, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I never thought of using that as an assessment tool. There's so many other sexy things out there, but the farmer's carry, I mean, just add a little bit of load, and it's a it's a movement that people do every day with groceries or whatever. Can um, I give you my numbers? Let me give you numbers, okay? And yes. This, this is years of experience, so unless give yourself ten years before you come up with a better idea, okay? <laughs> Use, I'll just, use a trap bar. You'll thank me for this. Okay. If they weigh 135 pounds or less, 135. 136 to 185, 185. For high school, you'll need the second one also. From 186 to 205, you'll need 205. And yeah. then everybody over 205 uh, have them use 225. It, that's right. Someone's going to raise their hand and say, I've got a boy who weighs 370. Should, 225. Well, he weighs 370. And I know I heard you. I'm not stupid. 225. It'll just mm -hmm. see a lot of hassle down the road, a lot less math. Uh, and what we're using at this gym, at this gym, if you can't go 100 yards with it, then that indicates to us that's a work capacity uh, check mark in my head. If you can't do 100 yards with that, See, you don't have to worry about the balance of farmer bars since it's a trap bar. You know, it's your grip strength is talking to each other, so it's not the same problem. Uh, if you can't do the 50 out and the 50 back, that just is an asterisk in my head that something's going on. Uh, and the minimum on the standing long jump is your height. If you can't standing long yeah. jump height, then that just tells me something. Uh, a year after total hip replacement, I could do that easily. I'm not bragging. That's not to one up anybody. But yeah, I don't think I, I don't think we're gonna feel one up by a uh, a height long jump. Now <laughs> we're all gonna have to go out and check it though. Now here's the we all need hip replacements. <laughs> you have to level the playing field with a hip hip replacement. If you're an elite thrower, you need to, or say like a, a volleyball player, maybe it's the, the line in the sand is nine foot six. So if you jump. 6'6", six, six, and the standard is 9'6", I can then indicate to you your problem is those three feet. Now, honestly, God, you might, you could, might be able, you might be able to play on the national team by just, you know, and stay on the team just by getting that standing long jump back where it used to be before the X, the Y, or the Z. So we don't always have to go 9'6", or whatever this, that line, doesn't But as if our training six months, six weeks later, you jumped six six, and six weeks later you're up to seven feet four inches. Well, that indicates that our that our training is on the right path. 
if your farmer walk was uh, 72 yards and now it's 103, so both your standing long jump and your farmer walk increased, I can kind of sit back and say, you know what, I feel pretty good about this. I feel I feel like we're on the, this the program that we have is a good program. Very few people assess programs. Everybody assesses the person, and that's I, I think that has the uh, it diminishes value. If I put you on a fat loss program, well, and you lose fat, well, great. But if your standing long jump comes back a foot, the program sucks, and no one ever talks about this. So no one ever talks. So to me, I circle explosion and work capacity as as the two big um, the, the two the whatever you, word you want. It, those are the two big items. Mm-hmm. And if you're if I put you on a, a muscle a mass gaining program and you put on forty pounds in six weeks and your standing long jump goes up, that was a hell of a program. Whatever you did, man, was awesome. Whatever you did was great, and I'm going to repeat whatever you did the rest of my career. Yeah. If you put on 40 pounds in six weeks and your standing long jump stayed the same, I'm comfortable with that, yeah. and I'm also comfortable if it dropped off a few inches. If you're a football player, you're not going to get smaller as the game goes on. You know, I'm not worried about that. So sometimes you just so what it does is it tests the program. Um, standing long jump and the farmer walk are simple to teach. The drill is the skill on them. If you, if you find your athletes cheating by sneaking off by themselves and practicing their standing long jump, I'm okay with that. You know, hey coach, you mind if we do some extra farmer walks today? Yeah, I, I, I'm okay with that. Said nobody no. ever. <laughs> so those those are the two. That's that's the big thing for me right now. Those are the two big tools I'm using to assess, not the athlete. Clear that out of your head. To assess the program I have you on. Yeah. And why not uh, vertical jumps? Uh, okay. So you vertical jump 26 and a quarter inches. After six weeks, you vertical jump 26 and a half. How much is my visual error going to impact that improvement? There's not enough inches to play with. Okay. There's not enough centimeters to play with. You follow? Uh, yeah. On the waistline, I always measure males' waistlines in centimeters because if they go from 104 to 100 centimeters, that's progress. But if they go from 38 and three quarters to 38 and a quarter, they won't notice it. You I got you. So you got to give it 10 years, Luke. <laughs> so that's so. I just don't think you have enough. Uh, I don't know dots. I don't know. You know, there's not enough. Data points. Yeah, the spectrum is too ch- there's too big of chunks. Yeah. Too big of, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you increase a kid's vertical jump, a good athlete by an inch, that's impressive as hell, a good athlete. Mm-hmm. But it's just an inch. It's it's almost user error will hide an inch improvement. Mm-hmm. And don't tell me about those magic things you can buy from the companies. <laughs> no, those things are great, and that's fine. But with the standing long jump, you know, you go from two meters to two twenty. Yeah, we know you're better. You follow? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And user error, I mean, if I screw up by half an inch on a standing long jump, or an inch, it's it's, it's in the wash. But if I screw up by an inch on the vertical jump, it's very noticeable. Um, we had a teacher, uh, a vertical jump test when I was in ninth grade, and the other boys taught me how to put your foot on the wall. 
as you jumped and it, it increased at about five inches and one of the teachers always caught it and the other one didn't so you always made sure that you go into the one teacher on the vertical jump so but I've yet to see someone cheat halfway through the standing long jump and in fact if you can find someone to figure out a way to cheat in the air on a standing long jump video it because I want to see what the hell they're doing I know just the guy yeah Nate the clinic Austin he'll <laughs> find a way yeah, halfway through, you, you take a stick and you put it in the ground. And push yeah, like it. a little oar. A little oar, yeah. yeah. So, that's, it, it, so that makes sense. So you'll notice, too, remember I said you're not allowed to comment on them until you've done 10 years? Yeah, text correct me. No, no, because that's the vertical jump. I did, did it for years, man. And then all of a sudden, one day I realized this kid went from being a 181-foot discus throw to 214. His vertical jump didn't go up at all because we could have screwed up when it was, when it was you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so user error, man. If you, use, user error. Get used yeah. to that. Gotcha. Are you sure. still big on uh, on working with Pavel and the kettlebells? And Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I have 20 kettlebells in my home gym. and uh, But the thing is, if you use kettlebells correctly, like really the kettle – here's what the kettlebell is good for. I, I, I think it's good for this. The goblet squat, the kettlebell swing – and I really like it for overhead pressing. I like it a lot for overhead pressing. Um, just because of the position of it behind your forearm on the uh, press? Yeah, and I just think that the kettlebell swing, the way it is, it's superior to, to using dumbbells. Try try dumbbells and then try kettlebells, and you'll go, okay, I get what you say. Uh, and I just like the way that the, the kettlebell press works. And it just, you know, I mean, I'm 57, and I'm, you know, I've had my, my issues. Don't, I don't have when I do kettlebells. But with the barbell, it's the deadlift and press family. With the TRX, it's the TY&I pulls. With the ab wheel, it's the ab wheel. With the prowler, it's the push in the prowler. With the sled, it's pulling the sled. Uh, when you come to my gym, every piece of equipment has its has its job. And its, and its job is to do its job. And i tell you one thing. If you just went into the gym every day, and did what the best thing each piece of equipment could do for you, you have to do the workout. Yeah. You know, uh, it's when you try to, I don't know, when you're trying to push the kettle, you know, it's like when people tell me about dragging kettlebells. It's like, why? Why not get a cheap, get a wheelbarrow at Home Depot, you know, hook a rope through it and just drag that thing around. Yeah, it's great. I, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, I, that's one thing I learned early on in training, and I had a really good mentor, but, uh, you know, he he was talking to someone, asked him a question about, I don't know, riding their bicycle for exercise, and he said, but all I have is a mountain bike. He said, good, that's harder. I mean, what do you want from me, you know? And, you know, whether it's, whether it's making something more awkward, and that's one of the things also I enjoy actually training with Luke with is because sometimes I'll see him doing something differently, and we're always kind of bouncing ideas off each other, and I'll notice his body position is different or the tempo is different, and I'm like, you know, why? It's like, it's harder. And I'm like, he's like, you know, getting fewer reps, but it's not like a dick swinging contest. It's like we're on a program where it's supposed to feel hard, and it's supposed to be, you know, this, this lactic acid-type training. And so, um, so I, can, I can definitely understand uh, the, the awkwardness of kettlebells and the use um, and the implementation of those. Yeah, and so you got to be careful. I think you know, you know. I see, I see the equipment in my gym as tools, 
And then, I, for example, I could probably write today a really good book with pen and paper, but I have terrible handwriting. So I have this computer <laughs> fix uh, like spelling errors and grammatical. So I, I can certainly, I could also write a good book probably with a crayon on a wall. Yeah. And I feel sometimes when I talk to people, it's like, dude, you're writing a book with a crayon on the wall here. You know, why, you know, uh, and I have, I understand there's times for like for a client to do a, a kettlebell deadlift. But once you get to a certain point doing a kettlebell deadlift, use the barbell. Yeah. And walk over, you know, use the correct tool for the correct job. Sure. Uh, and yeah. so, and now I also have great respects for kettlebell only gyms. Like uh, Paul has his in Burr Ridge. It's a Burr Ridge kettlebell. It's just kettlebells. And I got great respect for that. I think you could, and the thing is, I also like it when someone just puts a line in the sand and says, hey, man, this is who we are. This is how we're going to train. I've been to Olympic lift only gyms. And the answer to all questions is snatch and clean and jerk. You know, fat loss clients, snatch and clean and jerk. You see Marty Gallagher, you're going to be on a, a bench press deadlift squat program. If it's body fat, he's going to put you on a 12-week uh, uh, kind of uh, modulated linear periodization to get you where you want to be. If you don't want that, don't go see Marty. Yeah. And great respect for those of us who are still, you know, sort of psychopathic on things. Uh, but at the same time, you know, a guy like me, I have a lot of tools in my gym. I mean, I have uh, I have rings in the backyard. I have climbing rope. Uh, we got a lot of gymnastics equipment in my gym. And people say, "What do you do with this the, this piece of equipment?" And I'll show them the one or two things, three things we do. Uh, no one in my gym is getting ready for the Olympics in gymnastics, you know, unless they find a place for, you know, 57-year-old guys who weigh over 200 pounds who go so far, you know, a gymnastics competition at the Olympics. Otherwise, you know, we use the tool to do certain things. You know, you make a good point about the, the kettlebell only or the Olympic lifting only gyms, and it's like even if you don't necessarily get behind the philosophy or its use for something like say weight loss what yeah. you can really respect is like the the fact that they're they're passionate it's obvious they chose this one thing and they're so crazy passionate about it if to to not appreciate their enthusiasm to not somehow be affected by that in some way would be like just crazy so i i can understand that i mean there are definitely people who you know, Zumba is their entire life. Their entire life is Zumba. It will always be Zumba. And you're like, fuck, I hate everything about what you do, but you I also appreciate it. it. No, I've well, never done it. My fat loss program, and I've been telling people for the years, is join the high school track team and become a 400 meter runner. Yeah. <laughs> oh like I, I can prove in just a short few weeks. In fact, I always tell people it's the eat anything you want workout. That's the that's 350 meters too far, I think. No, well, eat anything you want at breakfast or lunch. God, go help. Go to McDonald's. Get all that salty fat. Gross. <laughs> because I'll find it all over the track the next day. Um, yeah, you know, that's true. Running is at least a great equalizer. Well, 400 meters, and you know, uh, when when we train kids, it's like they always say. People come in and go, "How did you get these boys? They have look at those bodies. They're so chiseled." How can I do that? Well, you're going to just go over there and then run as fast as you can around the track one time, and then we'll rest a few minutes, and we'll do it again, and then we'll do it just one more time. I have a rule with my runners. It's called the 1,200-meter rule. 
we never go over 1,200 meters in, in a practice. And people say, why? And then I look at them like, it's obvious to me, you've never done what I've just said. Yeah. Never done it. Well, well but I, I wish we talked to my high school football coach. Less our, more. Uh, our favorite <laughs> workout was 16 220s. So you would run a 220, walk a 220, run right. a 220. And how many times in a game? Unless they change the football field. To no, I, it was it was ridiculous. But that was our once a week workout. It never it started at 16 and ended at 16. We did that for eight weeks. Yeah, and, and that was our conditioning, and uh, that was terrible. It was 16 miles, one mile. carry over on the field of play. Yeah, it was terrible. You probably yeah. probably lost about through the years. You probably lost a couple of guys who were real, real probably high end players, because when you're constantly challenging the smart guys. The smart guy, you know, I, yeah. someone's going to walk away. Someone who could, yeah. Okay, I know. <laughs> um, hey, Dan, is there is there anything specific coming up? Any of your uh, lectures or your seminars or your book that you want to um, tell our listeners about, and, or where they can go to find those resources? No, not really. But I mean, I got <laughs> stuff coming up all the time. But you know, I got my blog at danjohn.net, and you know, on Facebook, there's. I'm Daniel John, but yeah, I don't. I don't usually pimp my stuff. I don't. I don't. You know, I don't. Well, that's because that's because you have so many people already well, following uh, you. Are you kidding me? He's like the most celebrated writer on our favorite site, T Nation. It is. Yeah, you I are. Tell you that, that place is the wild west. <laughs> uh, Anything goes. I will write an article on there. Someone will take offense to something I said, and it's like. Holy, and it's usually a man. It's like, dude, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed you just wrote that. <laughs> I'm embarrassed you just wrote that. Offense to that? It's so no, great. It's, uh, you know, I said one time, I don't think you're strong, and I put a number in there. It goes, well, I've been lifting six years, and I can't do that. And it's like, yeah, and I was listening, and I was a 135-pound high school sophomore and could. My point being is maybe God doesn't want you to lift weights. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's well, coming it's, from it's a. Do you have to come to the realization that that's maybe God doesn't like you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm not. I'm not a bad person because when I say things like that. No. Uh, I I just you know that's genetics and geography. We get back to that again. You just these the guys. Internet, uh, the the internet has bred uh, incredibly sensitive people. Like oh. I'm always amazed at how sensitive people it are. It has not bred them. It's merely brought them to, yes. uh, to have a voice. They've yeah, always existed. Just, because normally in person you just belittle them and they would just like go they would, the corner. Bench, well, bench, you salt. see, now you, now you can't do that, John. You can't belittle people. In, oh, it's because they come back and shoot you? Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So you're going to shoot John? Yeah. No. I, Callie, I'm, well, I just, I'm probably pretty good with a gun. I'm uh, yeah, the the but we do like Teen Nation. I mean, there's oh, there's definitely no, we entertainment. We there's, do not like Teen there's Nation. There's entertainment there. Yeah. But I tell you something. If you go back, I mean, if you go back to '99, oh, when they used to come out every Friday, in '98, '99, I mean, it was it was a high. I mean, I really they popped up some. I mean, this is where I learned about Ian King and a bunch of other people. Um, some of the stuff has been really. T Nation has really brought forth a lot of great things. Now, of course, since they come out, you know, now it's daily. Um, sometimes, you know, I mean, there's certain authors that it's like, how can you come up with new stuff every three days? Yeah. You know? And well, they went back to '99 and they just rewrite it. Rewrite? Well, it's, yeah, it's just recycling of ideas. You know, it's just you know, T, 
EC just asked me to talk about something I wrote in 1998. As a joke, I called it the Ten Commandments, and it's funny because when I reviewed them in 2015, I felt that the same things still stood. So it's kind of funny. So they do some things like that, which I appreciate. Um, sometimes I look at the article, and I obviously know it's it, – but it's like the fitness magazines. I mean, I know they're not written for me. I'm not stupid. You know, I, I go in there, and I, the, 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 the macho posturing – you know, I, I know I was that way when I was 14 and 15, but, you know, you get to a point where I really have moved on from that, you know. Uh, I don't, I, you know, my legacy is not going to be the fact that I once won a fight in a pizza parlor or something. I have much cooler stories than that that I can't even share with you guys, but the stories are so cool. It was actually fighting the Burger King. And it's like, you know, you just you just wake up one day and you realize that, you know, and, and I, I do. I I, I, I I do like the Internet. I, I really have gotten a lot out of it. At the same time, it also allows the bullying and, of Anonymous and things like that. Well, just know the Internet's a fad. It's, yeah. uh, it's going to go out of style, kind of like pockets and zippers, but uh, I'm – Putting my money on it that the internet's going to be a fad that's going to go outside. Um, it is also interesting when you finally do meet some of these people finally in person, and it's like the first thing out of my mouth is, "I know you type a lot. Have you ever lifted?" Uh, <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, you know, we've run into or I've run into that a few times. I think I was uh, I, I taught a seminar and this lady was arguing with me the efficacy of one-arm dumbbell rows as a functional movement. And the lady was probably mid-30s. Her lifting experience probably was probably two months. Uh, and she literally wanted, you know, was telling me, you know, talking about her athletes and her coaching and all this stuff, and then wanted to argue with me about the efficacy of using a one-arm dumbbell row as a, uh, as a functional movement. And I was Please. like, first of all, define functional movement. And she's like, well, it's uh, not one arm dumbbell rows. I'm like, well, what, you know, let's go through your, let's go through definitions. Multi jointed, yes. Uh, does it have translation to something else? Yes. And I kind of went through this whole thing, and then she, uh, and then finally I was like, you know, uh, how long have you been doing this? Well, I, you know, I, I was, you know, this, and I, I've really been into lifting weights for, uh, you know, a shorter time. And I'm like, well, what's short? You know, <laughs> like under a year, under ten years? She's like, no, like, well, you know, Six seriously, months. for a couple months, but my head's always been in it. And I remember being like. I have to have a conversation with a lady, um, and I was like, you know, I, I've been doing this, uh, I'm 37, and I've been doing this since I was 14 years old religiously as a job, and actually used everything I did in my training to generate an income and support myself and play at a high level, and uh, this is the conversation I'm having, and uh, she thought that, uh, and of course, she accused me of being arrogant, and um, I was like, you know what, I, I, I just think um, that, you know, people... Like, everybody's so quick to jump out there and be a fucking expert. And uh, the thing about experts is there really aren't that many. That's why they're experts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you know what the Internet's allowed people to do? With a Google search and a few watching the videos, everybody's an expert. Like, when I, uh, when I started Olympic lifting, nobody Olympic lifted. I mean, we did it in high school, went to college. I remember I had to order my Olympic lifting shoes, and they took, like, four to six weeks to get there. And uh, now you turn on the Internet, everybody's a fucking Olympic lifter. It's amazing. I'm like, it's, it blows my mind. So. Well, nothing wrong with that. My only soft soft spot in my heart for Teen Nation is because I had a Teen Nation account uh, before I had a Facebook account, and so that was I thought that that was social media. <laughs> they have used three of my pictures directly of me without permission. 
shouldn't be on the internet that they've taken off my site of me. I wonder how many pictures there are of me floating around on TV. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> I know Packy's up there. Oh, are is yeah, she? Yeah, well, that's because she's got a banging body. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, when, when you put out 27 articles a day, you got to start swiping stuff left and right. They, they got probably people just searching the internet for things. Dan, this is the point in the podcast where you go off the rails. So if there's uh, if there's anything more pertinent that you want to talk about, now's the time. <laughs> Well, anything else to add? Uh, hey, this has been great. I have to go to practice here pretty soon. Oh, okay, okay. You you're you are doing constructive things with your time. That's right. Thank you. Thank you so so much for taking the time to uh, to chat with us and wrap with us on. Any, any last any last questions or anything you want me to? Uh, Denny, was there anything uh, anything? Is you it want difficult to being Catholic in Salt Lake City, more uh, Utah, more well, area. You know, I mean, being Irish Catholic and being Irish Catholic, I'm just wondering how it fits in with that. Nice Irish boy from South San Francisco living in the yeah. uh, in the stronghold of the of the LDS. You know, it's you know, you you kind of after a while get used to. Uh, there's no nice. There's no nice way to say. It. Well, you know what? We're we're uncensored. There's some. There are obviously a lot of quality people here. Uh, there's a bit of uh, there is a problem of poor eyesight in in my great state. Uh, uh, it's interesting because many uh, ma many magazines have called Salt Lake City the most gay friendly uh, town in America, and yet most people, if you told that to, in Salt Lake City, would not even realize that we have a massive. Uh, LGBT community here in in Utah, they wouldn't even know because they have, they 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 don't see things. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I I actually think there's it's good for me in a way because it allows me to be able to go in and make a difference. My wife and I are very uh, we discovered years ago that there's a huge suicide rate among the children here, so we've been actively involved in. Not only donating, but in sponsoring a whole bunch of different things to to help curb that, because I've never felt that suicide. I don't condemn, but at the same times, I've always felt that that is a such a such a permanent temporary <laughs> problem. So we've we've been very active in there. So I feel like you know if if I it, you know I hate to call it a call because that sounds so. But it's been it's been a lot of blessings and a lot of joy for me. I've enjoyed it very much, and I feel like I can make a difference here. That's uh, great. My neighbors pretend I don't exist, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. great. Well, go ahead and get off to practice. Thank you so much again for joining us, Dan, and we hope to have you on soon. Thank you. Anytime you guys want. I thought this was really easy, and I really appreciate the time. Oh, Thanks good. a lot, Dan. You bet. My best to all of you, okay? Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, Dan. A big thanks to Dan for imparting all of his wisdom and experience. If you want to learn more about Dan John, you can visit his website, danjohn.net, and of course, read his articles on tnation.com. Next week, we will talk with Brent Brookbush of the Brookbush Institute of Human Movement Science Education. I may rid Brent a bit on the name, referring to it as the ilovemyself.com of physiocytes, but rest assured, this guy knows the body. 
His website has been a great educational resource for coaches and athletes seeking a deeper understanding of human movement and mechanics. Stay tuned to episode 97 for our conversation. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye.